shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. All right. Good morning, everyone. Good to be here with you. And visit, if you're visiting Cambridge Gardens, welcome to you. It's great to have you here with us. Um, it's always distracting when your beautiful wife reads the Bible. I'm going to get my thoughts in thought now. Uh, okay. Uh, if you're visiting Canterbury Gardens, we've been um, going through the book of Acts. Uh, most of our whole year was spent in the book of Acts. And then we were talking about what does it mean to be a church that is witnessing this gospel uh, wherever God has placed us. And then we wanted to now go a little bit more deeper as a leadership team as we've been wrestling through and going, well, where is God leading us? What do we want to uh, teach? What do we want to um, marinate on? What do we want to think through? And this is where we came to this decision of going through this study guide about the gospel-shaped living. And the heart of that was to not just talk about the gospel and being witnesses, and as you heard Stephen Naomi talk about it, but actually, what does it actually look like to live this out? What if the gospel actually shaped every aspect of your life? And that's what we are going to be sort of thinking about this morning. The main passage that we're going to be spending most of our time in is the verses that were read to you. So let me pray for us as we dive into it. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true, it's powerful, it's active. Even this morning, settle our hearts and our minds and our words, we pray. That we'll walk away knowing more what it means to be light and salt for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I'm guessing some of you have got your little books maybe here with you. If you do, there's a little section uh, called Sermon Notes on page 31. If you're a note taker... You can actually fill it out and, and do that. It's up to you if you want to do that. Now, when you come to church, and maybe you, you think about it, maybe you don't, you're just part of your own sort of um, way of just, this is Sunday, this is what we do. But have you ever wondered what may be the reasons why people don't come to a Sunday gathering? Why people may not come to, uh, in their view, as they say, church? Have you ever wondered the reasons why? Maybe you have uh, those thoughts running in your head. Maybe you've thought about it and gone, okay, these might be the reasons. Well, thankfully, there's a research group by the name of the McCrindle Research Group. They're based in Sydney. They're an Australian firm. They asked this question in 2013. And here, um, there was going to be up here on the screen. I just realized I didn't give it to Jane, so don't worry about it, Jane. Uh, they found out the research. There were six reasons why Aussies don't go to church. Here are the top six reasons. 47% said it's actually irrelevant to life. 26% said they don't accept how it's taught. 24% said it's outdated and out of style. 22% said they had issues with clergy and ministers. And finally, 19% said they don't believe the Bible... Finally, 18% said it's too, they're too busy to attend on a Sunday. 
Now, as you look uh, at those um, statistics or hear those statistics, the question I have is, is there anything that surprises you? The idea of it being irrelevant, the idea of it being outdated, the idea of it that they don't believe in the Bible, or they're too busy to attend. Is there any surprises there? Well, I don't know about you, um, to me there wasn't any surprises. When I looked at those statistics, I went, okay, yep, I've heard that. I've heard those conversations with people. But I don't know about you, uh, when you hear those statistics, when you hear uh, some of the statistics, particularly here in Australia, particularly here in Melbourne, it almost seems impossible. I love what Stephen Aramis said about this idea of open doors. It's actually, there's nothing is closed off to the gospel. There's always an open door. And you know what? It is humanly not possible. See, in the Gospel of Matthew, later on, Jesus is interacting with his disciples in chapter 19. And they talk about a rich man. And, and Jesus talks about his, it's very hard for a rich man to come into the kingdom of heaven. And it's very hard, he says to them. But then he says to them in verse 25 of chapter 19, he says, But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Jesus says to them, Yes, it is possible. It is possible because it is possible through God. I mean, these stats are a reminder for me, I don't know about you, that it's a reminder for me when I read it and I look it up, I realize I am totally and we are utterly dependent on God. Because it reminds us, although that even the stats may say, look, churches are dying, it's not growing, Jesus actually says it is possible. Because he has made it possible. And do you know what his, um, his purpose or his, his, his um, tools, what he uses, his agents for that? Are anyone who call themselves disciples. His disciples are his agents to go and share this good news. Jesus is the one who makes it possible. That's always the truth. His truth is made possible by him. But who he uses are his disciples. Those disciples that he's speaking to in this passage, but also any of you who call yourself follower of Jesus. I mean, we saw that as we studied the book of Acts, throughout it, we've got this idea of these disciples and apostles on the move. They're on mission. They've been called to be witnesses wherever God has placed them. And they do that. They're as disciples. They, they realize they no longer live a life just for themselves. They belong to someone. They belong to their risen king. And so they love and serve and they proclaim the truth. Now, when you read this passage, I remember when you heard it, Matthew chapter 5, it's a very famous set of words that Jesus said. It's very easy for us to look at it and go, yep, I've heard that before. Maybe I should have stayed in bed this morning. Maybe some of us are going, well, to be light and salt. Okay, let me think about my, this week. Oof. I haven't been too good at being light and salt. I'm feeling a bit guilty today. Friends, what I'm hoping to do is answer a couple of questions this morning. The first question is to ask ourselves why we forget. And secondly, what is our purpose? Why we forget. So Jesus is continuing a set of teachings. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is probably one of the most set of teachings that we have of Jesus. Uh, you can read about it in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. 
Jesus calls his disciples and he, he explains to them and he unpacks for them uh, some very deep and radical thinking. Some people call it an upside-down kingdom. There's this idea of one kingdom of being the world and then you've got uh, the other idea of the kingdom being as in you are representing Christ. You're living these truths out. And so he's saying to his disciples in the previous verses, it's probably one of the most uh, famous set of verses about, they call the Beatitudes or blessed verses. What he's saying to them is, hey, this lifestyle that now you've been called to, as a disciple of mine, it's actually upside down. It's unlike anything that you see in this world. And he explains to them what this lifestyle will look like. I mean, if you read about it, it's actually quite challenging, quite confronting. And in that language, what Jesus says to them, there's one aspect of it. Hey, you've got this one aspect of uh, some of these things are happening now that you are blessed, and some of the things are yet to come. And always there's this language of being, it's an internal aspect as well. It's not just external. And then Jesus then explains and goes and moves out into external what this actually looks like because of the truths that I explained a little bit earlier. And Jesus talks about them being blessed. When they're poor in spirit. They're blessed when they mourn. They're blessed when, they're, is, when you're meek. Blessed are those who hunger. Blessed are who are merciful. Blessed are who are pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. I mean, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sakes, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we heard about that as Stephen Omi shared about this reality of many of our brothers and sisters in Christ. That is a daily thing for them. The idea of blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. Utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely in my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He's explaining to them. And we, we saw that, didn't we? We see that in Acts. I don't know if you remember the constant stories of them proclaiming the gospel, resistance of the gospel. They're persecuted. They're thrown into jail. We, we unpack that even in Paul's life, which would eventually lead to his martyrdom, where he died for the sake of the gospel. And so Jesus is unpacking for these disciples, first and foremost, this is what it would look like, but know that you are blessed because your name is in the kingdom of heaven. You are known by the creator of the universe. And then he says, because of all these things, you are now to be the salt of the earth. A few years ago, I was involved in student ministry. And at every student ministry, they usually have a conference. And at every conference, what do we do, particularly Christian ones? We eat. There's lots of food. And every time we would have this sort of um, dessert time, dessert time was my favorite time. Uh, and one of the times, particularly at anything that's a Christian camp, I don't know, they must have like sort of the set menu. There's always this sticky date pudding night. I don't know if you remember if you went to any Christian camps. As this was the night. It was the sticky date pudding night. I was pretty excited about this. So we knew, and the sticky date puddings poured out, and we've got the slabs of sticky date pudding in front of us, and they're serving it to us. I'm like, oh, look how warm and awesome this looks. And I go up to the counter, and I pour my caramel sauce on it, and I'm excited. I go and sit down, and I'm, I'm just sitting there, and I go, mmm, and I take the first uh, spoonful in my mouth, and I just go, ugh. That's a bit funny. Now, most people would go, okay, what's wrong with it? And ask questions. I decide to have more. So I put my spoon, and I stick it in my mouth, and I go, ugh. And at that point, maybe you would then go, okay, maybe we should ask some questions. No, I decide to have a third one. So 
because I'm trying to figure out what's going on in my mouth. This doesn't quite fit. It's got a funny taste to it. And I put it in my mouth and I go, at that moment, there's a table across from me. A bunch of guys burst out in laughter. What they had done was they decided to grab the gravy sauce that was used for dinner and swap it with what I thought was caramel sauce. And what I had done was poured gravy all over my sticky date pudding. It was disgusting. <laughs> to this day, I don't talk to them. No, I don't know. Now, in that moment, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's just a poor illustration probably, but at the heart of it, what I'm saying is that, you, you know, I'm tasting it. I thought it was going to be really good, but it's useless. It's pointless. It's lost its flavor. It's no longer a sticky date pudding. It looks like a sticky date pudding, but it's no longer a sticky date pudding. Once you taste it, it's gone salty. What Jesus is using is everyday language that was very well known to the disciples at the time. Salt was part of their culture. This is before, in a sense, of fridges and electricity as well, as we talk about it in a minute in the light. What it's talking about, this picture of a preserver. Jesus is saying to them, he's communicating to them, hey, you are the seasoning, you are the preserver. What he's talking about here is to further go and say, hey, listen, as you grow as my disciples in what it means to love God and love others, both in your heart, soul, mind, and strength, in all your relationships, what that means is that this arena, this place that I've placed you in, this earth, this world, where I've placed you and I'm going to be shaping you, and those shaping, you can read a little bit more about the blessed, what that means, that shaping, you're actually now being prepared for eternity. And Jesus is saying to them, as my disciples, as you live on this earth, as you live your life, as I shape you for the things that are to come, the different seasons that you face, know that you are blessed, but with eternity in sight, know that you're also here to be a preserver, to represent me, to represent God then as you live your life, loving God and loving others, you're actually being my representative here. You're here to be a preserver, proclaiming the truths of the kingdom, the kingdom of God in your life. I mean, this is quite fascinating because here is Jesus. He hasn't actually gone to the cross yet. He hasn't actually been raised from the dead yet. But he knew at start from word go, that was the call for his disciples. Not just his disciples, anyone else who calls themselves disciples of Jesus. And we saw that in Acts. We read in Acts. If you go back to it again, you see that. You see this being played out in their lives. And we might be sitting here, well, okay, that's great. What's the point of it? Friends, I don't know if you realize, but if you are a disciple of Jesus, if you say that you follow Christ, you've actually been made for a purpose. Not some accident. You have a purpose for God and His growth of His kingdom. So, this is why the Christian worldview of life is nothing like what the world may say. We actually have a high view of life in humans, in creation, in, in, in beings, because they represent God, they're an image of God. They have infinite value in that sense. But that means also we have a purpose. We've been made to be servants, to represent Him in this world. But, I don't know about you, 
I think often we are prone to forget. We're prone to forget why we're here. And that's nothing new. Because see, God's purpose for mankind, it didn't all of a sudden Jesus showed up and it started happening. God's purpose in his story has always been the same. See, when God created the world, he created the world, he created man and woman. In Genesis chapter 3, God is speaking and he says, you, he says to them, uh, you've been created and he says to them, uh, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the earth. And he says, behold, I've given you every plant yielding, everything that has breath, and God's purpose has always been to, preserve, to, to send man out, to send woman out as image bearers. But from Genesis 3 onwards, you have this storyline of mankind forgetting why they're there. Why? Ultimately what happens is their focus becomes inward. It becomes about themselves. And this is the great grace and love of God that he sends someone in Jesus Christ who both displays and lives out perfectly what it means to be a preserver as salt Jesus says hey if you call yourself a follower of mine don't forget who you are because when you forget who you are he brings some confronting words he says you lose your flavor so this is why the Christian faith is much more than just, yes, it is about loving Jesus, it is, but it is much more than that. It should actually reflect in your life, in all that you do, all that you think, how you live your life. It should come out, it should uh, permeate, it should flavor. And if it doesn't, what happens is it becomes bland. It becomes bland, he says to them. It might as be good as just being trampled out. And the language here is, is if you don't stay with your witness, and, and particularly in the context of the disciples, he's saying to them, you're just trampled out by your enemies. You're pointless. Your witness is lost. If it doesn't match how you live. It's like saying, if you and I just say that if it means to be a Christian, just means that on Sunday we sing some songs, we have communion, we listen to some guy rabbit on about the Bible, and about 12 p.m., we say goodbye to people after we've had our donut. And then as we're about to head out the door, if you can just imagine, Jesus is standing next to you and you say to him, hey, look, I'll see you next week. It does not compute. It does not work. It's like between Monday to Saturday, it doesn't match. I mean, why, why does this happen? I, look, there's, I'm sure there's plenty of things. I think at the heart of it is we forget. At the heart of it, we forget that we are here on this earth for a purpose. And this is why, if you do not know Jesus, the Christian faith is not just a religion. It's much more than religion. It's much more than some sort of, oh, it'll help you. Yeah, it will help. It's much more, much deeper than that. It's much more than just, well, if I give my life to Jesus now, I stay out of hell. That is true. But it's much more deeper than that. It should flow out. I think we forget. So friends, how's your memory when it comes to who you are? Particularly if you call yourself a disciple, how's my memory? More as we unpack what it means to be not just a gospel-shaped person, but as a gospel-shaped community, we need to ask the church how our memories as a church, why 
have we forgotten? Or have we forgotten? Uh, a little while back, I read a document that was uh, put together about a brief history about Canary Gardens Community Church. I just want to read to you a couple of things that really, to, even to this day, it keeps on reminding me. 1990, where two churches joined together and they bought this plot of land. Uh, and then, like with any church, there's ebbs and flows. You can read about it in the document. But the thing that was very clear is as God moved these two congregations, these two leadership teams to join and to purchase this land and to start this purpose of God's purposes here, this is what it says. As it was, it was quoted, it says, God's hand was clearly evident in the negotiations. That's for the purchase of this land. There's this testimony of God involved. That they knew that they have a purpose here. And so Canterbury Gardens was formed. And they named it into Canterbury Gardens Community Church. And this is why they did it. We were a community of Christians as well as a church within a local community which would endeavor to serve for the glory of God. You know, the reason why Canterbury Gardens Community Church exists is, as we talk about it, to make known Christ. But then, in light of that, we're wanting to be transformed by His Spirit. That means we've been placed here for a purpose. We don't just here to exist just by chance. God has a purpose in this community where we've been called to be salt. Salt in a community that desperately needs it. That desperately needs it. And if you call Canterbury Gardens Community Church home, that you are part of that plan from God. I mean, that's anyone who calls themselves a disciple of Jesus. You live in this area. You've been placed here for a purpose. Well, what is that purpose? Well, with that, Jesus goes further in the next few verses. He wants to show them that that this is why you've been created as a purpose for you. Then he wants to teach them. Teach them about their purpose of why they've been made. What is their role as disciples of Jesus? Verses 14 to 16, we have, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamb and put under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. What Jesus is saying is some really powerful and radical words. I mean, this concept of being light, particularly if you're in a Jewish background, it's nothing new. I mean, this idea of God being light has always been in the Jewish story. It's in the, constantly in the Bible. It goes way back. I mean, you go all the way back to Genesis 1. And you hear God's words. He says, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good. And God separated the light from darkness. Called, God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. From the beginning, God creates light. And that, yes, that light is there to reflect. But not only that, without light you can't see God's good work. And God is showing his good work in creation. He shows that. But we know in Genesis chapter 3, once again, we lose sight of this. Not only is there darkness, there's a deeper darkness, a spiritual darkness that has corrupted everything, including mankind. See, the Bible story, for those of us who, particularly in our Western context, we automatically go to make it individual. Yes, there's an individual aspect to the Bible stories and we see individual people, but there's always a collective aspect throughout the Bible story. 
See, the God, God's story is not just pursuing individuals. He's actually pursuing a people group. And in the context, in, in the people of Israel. He sets aside a group of people who are meant to set aside and to be a standout nation amongst the other nations. They only worshipped one God. They had laws and covenants. They weren't just kind of restrictive rules. What this to show is that they belong to God, the creator of the universe. The idea was for people to look at them and look at their life and go, there's something different about this people. And should point back to their creator. But you read the Bible story time and time again, failure after failure. But this is the good grace of God that he would be willing to send Jesus. Jesus himself describes in John chapter 8 that he says that he is the light. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have light of life. Jesus, the great light, invades our world. That invades the hearts of everyone who choose to follow him. And he reminds them again, over and over, that you have a purpose. You've been created for a purpose. And that is to be light. And this light is not something... It should have a purpose, but also it should overflow. It's driven out of a relationship with God. Jesus is actually saying to them a couple of things. It's actually quite radical. If you were listening to the disciples, yeah, it was something that might have been familiar a bit, but it would have been challenging. He says, you are the light. This is what it means if you are a disciple of mine. Not only are you just a single light, a singular person, one person, but you are a light like a city set on a hill. Now, when it comes to these kind of passages, particularly in the context and the time they wrote it, for us it's very easy to kind of go, okay, we just flick a light and it just all comes on. I don't know if you've ever been on a plane and you, you fly at night time and you see darkness all around you. Then as you fly over a particular city, you start seeing light. It shows that there is life there. It shows people live there. See, in this passage here, what Jesus mentions the word city, he's actually not just talking about the physical, he's actually talking about the people that live in that city. He's saying to the disciples, hey, you cannot hide it. You can't hide this light. And he once again uses this everyday picture that they would have known. So it's this idea of a candle. This candle would have had oil in it and it's burning. And then uh, what they do is they kind of they put a basket over to cover it. And Jesus says, no, you don't do that, do you? And they're like, of course not. We don't do that. We want to light it so that everyone can see the house. It's a wonderful picture of Jesus saying, just like that, this light should shine and it should light up everything around you. It's almost like even for now, he's saying to the disciples, this light that's in you should be displayed. should be displayed to everyone. As they watch this house, your most personal person is you, you, your being. It should light to the world. Friends, do you, do you remember that? Maybe you've been walking the Christian faith for a long time. I mean, do we know that? Or do we sort of know it as information? Do we know that that's our purpose, that Wakanri Gardens exists? Many years ago, um, I don't know, if you, particularly if you've got little kids, there's a Christian little group called Veggie Tales. Have you heard of that? Yep, some of you. 
It's a Christian version of brainwashing a kid to follow Jesus. Is that too harsh? Probably. Um, <laughs> I'm not a fan of it, but that's just my opinion. Um, there's a song that they did, and the song is basically, it's an old gospel hymn that African Americans used to sing, and they used to sing it mainly because it was part of the, the histories that they would sing this song to give clues for slaves who are trying to escape. But the line goes, the light, this little light, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it, let, let it shine. And it goes on. Okay? Now, I, I like the sentiment of, the, of, the, of that. Uh, it's great, the idea of lighting, and, and you're going to light, this is little, little little light shine. But I think it's always focused individually. I mean, the Christian faith is individual. It begins with you saying yes to Christ, giving your life to Jesus, but it is played out in community. You can't just keep it to yourself. This whole idea of Jesus saying to the disciples, you can't hide your faith because you've been made to be the light of the world. It begins individually, but is lived out in community. Jesus is not just talking to one person here. He's not just talking to Peter. He's actually talking to a group, a whole group, his disciples, a collective group. And this idea is once again further saying if you are a disciple, that means you're living as a community. It's like you're a city on a hill, lighting up, pointing to this Savior, to him. Because friends, there's much darkness in this world. I mean, there's much darkness even here in the city of Maruna. That's who we are part of at Canterbury Gardens. Did you know that here in, in the city of Maroondah, there's more money spent in gambling and pokies than any other place here in Melbourne? Did you know that there's three illegal brothels in our area? Did you know there's actually two legal ones literally up the road from us? Did you know that there's about four or five different um, motorcycle gangs that are in the area? Did you know that there is a higher proportion of drugs and alcohol abuse than any other place here in Maroondah? That's what we're part of. There is much darkness. And he says to the disciples, you are to live this out. You are to live these truths out of, if you are, if you are a disciple of mine, I've placed you not just individually but as a community. And how do you live it out? Well, you live it out by your good works. Now, what Jesus is saying here in, in that moment is not just good works to kind of show off. It's not good works to, you know, it's all about the nice stuff. What he's saying is the works that are going on, as you live out your life, what happens is people look at this good work and they ask, they're moved. It motivates others to go, there's something about you that's driving that. What is that? And so that work, then he says, that good work, he's saying it's your employment, everything that you do, everything that you do now changes. Jesus is saying, as you endeavor to be a disciple of mine, doing good in everything that God has placed you in front of to serve him, that changes everything in life. Because people will look and say, there's something different about you. Uh, if you go out to, I don't know where it is now, there's, you'll find a little cat trap. During the week, we had a lady who came to our church. She came and talked to a couple of us here, and she was in the foyer. She came up to me and said, oh, look, I've lost my cat. And my first response is, so what's your point? But 
You can tell if I'm a cat person or a dog person. So, uh, but she was quite distraught. And I said, okay, look, I'm really sorry. To that. Have you seen the cat? We've talked about it. Couldn't see the cat. So she then um, came and said, can I have a look around? And so we asked her to come and have a look around. And she looked. She couldn't find the cat. Anyway, she came back that night. We had a youth group on. And um, she decided to go look for the cat again at night time. A few of our young leaders, some of the guys, decided to go help her. I think they thought it was an adventure to chase the cat, but they thought, she thought they were going to help him. So they went to help her, and they tried to find this cat again. Another group of community of followers of Jesus trying to help this lady find a cat. And then... Okay, this is, okay grab a flyer on the way out. <coughs> and then um, she came yesterday morning with a net and everything else to catch this cat during our prayer time with their kids. She came up to the back here, and I remember saying to her, "Look, you know, I'm thinking, how do you, how do you, talk? you know, I'm look, I love cats to some extent, but I'm going okay. It obviously means a lot to her." And I said to her, "Hey, you know what? It's really sad and stressing, isn't it?" She goes, "Yeah, I really miss this cat." And I'm like, "Yeah, you know, look, as Christians, we believe God made cats. I'll ask Him why when I get to heaven, but..." And in light of that, I said to her, "Hey, do you mind if I prayed for you because God sees everything?" So we pray, I prayed for her, and then at our time together, one of our people in our little small group also prayed for her. So as I was praying for her, after she said to me, she used to bring her kids here to the playgroup. And um, she shared about how she, her and her husband have been thinking a lot about coming to church. Now, after that, <laughs> that uh, prayer time was over, I get a phone call during the day. Hey, this is the annoying cat lady. I'm really sorry to bother you. I said, hey, what's going on? She goes, I just want to say, your church has been amazing. There's a lady at your church who also likes cats like me, and she said that she's got a cat trap that she can lend her. So she's willing to lend her cat trap for free. That's ama- I, don't, I don't know what to say. I'm, I'm blown away. Blown away by what you're doing as a church. And this morning she came again to expect the cat trap, and... She shared with me how that she's deeply moved by the church's response to her. Friends, I'm thinking it's just a cat. God has a bigger purpose. That he's chasing and pursuing this woman. Do we believe that? I do. So Jesus says to these guys, through your good works, it's not like a blow your own trumpet kind of job. And so what he's saying is, as you live the truth out, as this truth is shaped, you are now being light as a disciple. Friends, the question is this morning is, is that true of you? Is that true of me? Is that true of us as a church? Or have we forgotten that we are first disciples of Jesus than everything else? That means when you head to work, school, as you parent, as you live out your retired life, as you serve in ministries... You have been called for a purpose to shine the light of Jesus. That means everything you do now changes. I mean, it's Monday to Sunday, every day, 24 hours, you are on watch. As a community watches to see who's this light that they're pointing to. So this week, as you head into this week, ask yourself this question. Have you forgotten the purpose of why you've been created? Is it for yourself and myself? 
Secondly, how much of your Christian faith has actually just become a personal thing? I get it, it's personal, but Jesus has actually called you much more radical than that. It's not meant to stay personal. Know that you've been called to be salt and to be light. And this is not about sucking up and trying harder. I love how Jesus, at the end of Matthew chapter, uh, the series of teaching, Matthew 7, he begins, he finishes off the teaching with this, with this and says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Jesus calls you to be a disciple, but it is not just grinding yourself up and just giving you to go no you need to first build your house on the rock and when you do and when we do as a church glory goes to him we join in his mission to being salt and light let's pray as the music team comes up i just want to use a little prayer that's on the back of our, on the book here on page 30. Lord Jesus, we pray as we embark on this series, as we uh, sort of think about what it means to be a shining light, that you would enable us to grow together and see more clearly the light of you, the light of the world. Lord Jesus, you are the true light. And in light of that, help us to be a bright light shining in this dark world for your glory. In Jesus' name.